in the name of Tash and Azeroth and Zardina, Lady of the Night, I have a great wish to be in that country of Narnia. Oh, my mistress, answered the mare, if you were in Narnia, you would be happy, for in that land, no maiden is forced to marry against her will. Welcome to the Chronicles of Podcast, where we are doing a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I'm Chase. And I'm Kel. Thank you all for joining us today. Just a reminder that we are talking about the third book in the series, The Horse and His Boy. But general spoiler warning for the whole Narnia series, as well as heads up, we go on tangents, talk about other stories we enjoy. We will do our best to give spoiler warnings along the way if it's anything out there. Uh, but today we are discussing The Horse and His Boy, Chapter 3, At the Gates of Tashban. Kind of at the gates of Tashban. Yeah, like, but... like adjacent to, not, not really at, but, you, you know, it in, in route to the gates of Tashban. Uh, but, Chase, let me give you a quick summary. So... Uh, the girl begins her story, and we finally learned that her name is Erevis Tarkina, the only daughter of a Tarkin, part of a family line extending to the Tizrak himself. May he never die. And even the god Tash. Her mother died when she was a child, and her older brother died in battle. And when her father remarried, her stepmother hated her and convinced her father to commit her in marriage to an old man who works with the Tizrak's halls of power. When Erevis heard of this, she wept for a day and then saddled up her horse when and rode into the woods with a dagger intending to kill herself in despair. When she prepared to do this, her horse spoke in human words saying, don't do that. At first she thought she was hearing things out of delusion, but when Hwin spoke again, she learned that the horse was a Narnian, kidnapped at birth, and the two conspired to escape north to Narnia, where Erevis could not be forced into marriage and Hwin could be a free Narnian horse. She returned home and tricked her father, asking to go three days into the woods to do secret sacrifices to the gods in customary preparation for her marriage. He gives her permission, uh, but instead she had, she had a servant forge her a letter that she hid away. And at this, uh, Shasta interrupted to ask, what's in the letter? And Bree shushed him, saying that she's telling a story in the traditional Calarmine style. She's going to get to it, so just let her finish. Erevis went on, saying how she drugged a servant girl to sleep and not see her escape, and she took her brother's armor, rode to a city called Azambalta, a trade and message post, and here she sent the letter back to her father, which was forged to say that it was from her betrothed, uh, claiming he found her in the woods, fell in love with her, and married her on the spot, and that was why she was gone, and her father should come to his house at once to celebrate. This ruse was to buy her more time as she continued her escape. She rode from there, and then she came upon the lions, Bree and Shasta, and that's how they all came together. Shasta, Shasta asked what happened to the servant girl she drugged, and Erevis says she doesn't care because she's been spying on her first stepmother, and it would be good if she was punished. Shasta doesn't find this fair, and Erevis remarked that none of her actions were to please Shasta. Shasta then asked how she could have been betrothed to be married when she is so young, but Bree scolds him saying that this is how this is how things always happen to young noble girls uh, when they are in this culture. Bree then shares about their journey to that point and how often Shasta fell off his back and then it's hilarious for everyone except for the three other people who are not Bree. Uh, but they go to bed. As they rode on, Bree and Erevis did all the talking, knowing some of the same places and some of the same people from their noble backgrounds. And then the conversation turned to Tashban, the great city. And they agreed to meet at a place called the Tombs of the Ancient Kings if they got separated because the Calarmines thought they were haunted so they wouldn't be followed there. 
they discussed ways to get across the city, and it became clear that the only real option was to be going in disguise. Gwen suggested that they dress in rags and get all dirty, and that the horses cut their tails to appear more as common horses than noble stallions. And Shasta and Bree pose as commoners leading their horses on foot. The idea isn't popular, but it is only the only one that seems possible, and so they prepare to go through the city. Trimming their tails was unpleasant, but they get through it, and they stuff their belongings into saddles into bur- in the burlap sacks, and they set off with simple rope harnesses on the horses, and as they enter the city, Shasta reminds the horses that they better not talk while they're there in the chapter. It does indeed. And the theme for this chapter, Gal, is rejecting expectations. Um, but yeah, this chapter opens with... Uh, with Erebus beginning her story and basically saying a few things that are confusing me. First of all, how do you understand what a Tarkin is? Just so I, that, that established. I think of Tarkins as like, like if this is British culture, like lords, like they're like noblemen uh, who have some sort of power and authority, but are not quite the level of king like the Tisrock is. Uh, so I would call them like lords who like rule over an area, like a feudal lord almost. Yeah. Uh, that's how I understand it. That's what I thought. But at the same time, it kind of feels like it is also a family name. Or maybe this is just a culture that doesn't have last names. And so you say their name and then their title. I think it's I think it's that. I think they just have first names because her betrothed is also, I think it's a Shosta. Uh a, a host, a hosta, something like that, a hosta Tarkin. And so I think they are just saying like, this is the same. It would, we'd be like Lord Chase or Lord Kell, where it's I like, like the ring of that. I do um, like how that sounds, but my, the, the chapter opens with her. This is, I feel like the equivalent of her to like my, my name is Inigo Montoya. Like she's like, my name is Erevis Tarkina. I ran away from my father. Prepare to fly. Uh, but it's, uh, she, she lets us know that she is descended from several different Tarkins, uh, son of a Tarkin, son of a Tarkin, son of a Tarkin, uh, who is the son of Tizrox, who apparently don't live forever. Uh, and the we shocking rebel. Wish he would live forever, Cal. May he live forever, Chase. And apparently she is descended from the god Tash. No casual. But so here's my thing. Spoiler alert for anyone who is not aware of the last battle uh, and, you know, who's not read through this book, doesn't know anything about Tash. Tash is the god of the Calamine culture who is like a demonic bird dragon. Is that a fair way to describe yeah, Tash? It's pretty wild, which I think we might get a description of him later in this book. I don't remember. Um, haven't read that far yet, but yeah. On the bright side, Kel, any good thing you do for Tash, apparently you do for Aslan, which is one of the weird things of I don't even want to talk about that right now. <laughs> that's a that is that's, Chase is referencing the last battle. That's uh, a discussion that will come at some point, but we don't have to get into today. But yeah, either give it, way give it a couple years and we'll get to that. It's uh, weird because I mean, knowing that we know that there is an entity that is Tash, but I assume that Tash did not birth the Tisrocks. I assume that's just a ruling family. Um, but yeah, it's it's odd. 
you know, but this is also common to both like real world human mythology, storytelling in general, uh, even like if you get into ancient cultures, like the idea that your ruling family has not only just like better breeding, but like actual like God blood in it, like the divine right theory of rulership is central to a lot of cultures throughout history. It, mm. It's the claim to the throne. The reason I can rule you is not just that I think that I'm better than you, but that the gods have declared I'm better than you by being part of my own family. Yeah, like, that my bloodline comes from Tash, the yeah. demon dragon bird. Yeah. Uh, but it is, uh, we, we see in Erebus a true Calarmine because the difference, you know, as we saw in the first chapter where Bree, you know, rebukes uh, Shasta for, you know, the may he live forever uh, regarding the Tizrak. Uh, Erebus is going to say this over and over here. She says, the Tizrak himself, may he live forever. The Tizrak, may he live forever. Like, this is, she Bree is ingrained. Bree doesn't here because Bree acknowledges that she's a noble person, whereas Shasta's just a commoner, so he doesn't. And Shasta also is, you know, supposedly of northern blood. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he shouldn't be, like, you know, succumbing to the cultural expectations of Calarmine. But I mean, having never had a memory outside of Calarmine, that's a lot to ask of a That's kid. a lot to ask for someone, you know. Just, hey, can you I, just all of a sudden stop doing everything that you learned how to do? Yeah, he didn't know he was different until like a few pages ago. So yeah. it, it's okay for him to ha have some habits of his entire life. Yeah, sure. Nope, not allowed. But we hear Erevis's story. She continues after, you know, going through her, her genealogy. Um, and we, we learn that Erevis is basically a mixture of Cinderella, Merida, and Mulan. Uh, and, you know, all of these different stories because, oh, like everything was great until one day my mom died uh, and my father married again and his stepmother, my stepmother hated me and uh, decided, hey, we're going to marry you off. So enter Cinderella and Merida vibes already. It, it really does. I mean, if Disney made a movie version of this, she would be a Disney princess for sure. 100%. Um, but yeah, evil stepmother, classic. Um, Forced marriage. One of her parents is dead, classic has a traumatic, uh, you know, influence like her, not only her mom dies, but her brother dies and like, wow. she keeps her armor. Yeah, so uh, her, her only friend. And, but then she is able to take that and wear his armor. So that adds strength to her. Yeah. It's all. And then it's a whole thing. Course, the trope of marrying off a young girl to a powerful old man is a bummer. I mean, I understand that it is supposed to be something to run from in this story. So I know why it's there, but it still sucks. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I like that it is it is a it's a trope that is like it's fun to play with, not because it's a fun storyline, because you're like, no, like that's obviously terrible. But because it's like, yes, like let's uh, like pursue freedom in another way. Uh, kind of like what we talked about last chapter, like for Erebus, like this is what she wants freedom from. Um, yeah. And it's it's a fun thing. But I do, 
real quick before we go, you know, before, uh, um, you know, she pursues her plan, there's a phrase that she uses a few times um, that must be a calamine expression. Uh, and it says uh, her with her stepmother, the sun appeared dark in her eyes uh, towards Erebus. And when Erebus is uh, count- contemplating the devastation that is she goes and weeps and she's thinking about how terrible her life will be this it says the sun appeared dark in my eyes and she'll later say it again and i like that this is a i think this is a fun expression because i don't know of any culture here that says this if i if they do that's you know i'm i'm just ignorant of that but i like that it is good world building for c.s lewis and again like one of the ways that this book is better written than the last two that we've encountered, like he doesn't stop to say, this is a common expression here. He just yeah. assumes that you're going to pick that up along. He, he trusts his reader to figure it out. Yeah. And you know what it good. means. Like though it's not an expression we use, be like, Oh yes. The sun appeared dark in her eyes. Like, ah, she's seeing something in a darker way. She's either angry or she's sad. Like yeah. there is and not as there's more hurt. darkness. Yeah. The the idiom has an internal logic to it that makes sense, mm-hmm. but we even though we haven't heard this phrase before, we can figure it out. Yeah. So I just like that. I and I think that. that's, that's I think that's good writing by C.S. Lewis. But as the sun appears darker in Erebus's eyes, she decides to go through with this plan of killing herself. So she steals a dagger, she takes Quinn who she just believes to be a normal mare at this point. She saddles up and she rides uh, and rides out alone. And she, you know, is about to stab herself in the heart when all of a sudden Quinn goes, oh, my mistress, do not by any means destroy yourself. For if you live, you may yet have good fortune, but all the dead are dead alike. And Quinn is like, wait, hold on. That's, that's a little too eloquent. I didn't say it quite like that. Yeah. Hush, hush, madam, hush," said Bree, who's thoroughly <laughs> enjoying himself. Yeah, it's uh, it's Bree just wants a good story. Yeah, Bree is the narrator in this chapter to let us know, like, hey, she is heightening the language. Hey, this is the traditional Calamine style of storytelling. Hey, if there's a detail earlier in the story, wait till later in the story for it to pay off, even though it's only like a paragraph later, but whatever. Um, Brie is essentially teaching us how to hear a story in this chapter, which is helpful. Like as a function of children's literature, which children's literature, one of the things that it does is it teaches you how to engage with the world. Like a lesson that C.S. Lewis seems to be teaching through this chapter is, hey, this is what it means to be a good listener to a story. And I actually love that. Like, it's I think it's a great fun thing. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan, but we get back to Erebus's story and Quinn prevents Erebus from killing herself. She, you know, puts herself between the knife and her chest somehow. Uh, but like she then rebukes her like a mother rebukes a child and, uh, you know, tells her you should not do this. And like, you know, Erebus realizes she's not crazy. She's not just like imagining that her horse is talking about. This is actually a talking horse. And we realize, oh, yeah, she's from Narnia. Which is something like I want to point out there, too. Like a, a thread that goes through this whole chapter is like whenever Erebus is going to kill herself, 
she and she first starts hearing him talk and and it's like oh i'm just like she says i said to myself the fear of death has disordered my reason subjected me to delusions and i became full of shame for none of my lineage ought to fear death more than the biting of a net therefore i addressed myself a second time to the stabbing like basically this idea that like oh well i'm too noble to be afraid of dying like I'm too noble to do this or that. Or like, like we, we talked about rejecting expectations as a theme for this chapter. And like, part of that is like throwing off the customs of the culture that she's come up in, but also like acknowledging that like, she has these assumptions of herself. Like she doesn't think that she should fear death. Obviously that's unreasonable, but also like it takes another perspective. Like when, to show her like, hey, not only is this not the only way out, but also like you should fear death because what's dead is dead and you don't want to be dead. So like, why would you want to be dead? Like it it takes like other perspectives like Huynh and Shasta to like call out that, hey, this assumption that you're making, this expectation you have, this custom that you're used to isn't necessarily the right way. It's just what you're used to. Absolutely. Um, I just... I, I was thinking about this as you're talking as I was kind of reading through my notes and everything uh, where, you know, she, as she's having this conversation with her being like, Hey, you are valuable. And then she's like, wow, you can talk like, you know, and she tells her when tells her her story. I was I immediately, I was like, man, the way that we got Bree's name was him going like, my name is Bree, <laughs> like oh, whatever. I'm pretty sure this is at least my head canon. Chase already knows where this is coming and he's covering his face. I'm pretty sure that whenever she was like, what's your name? Eric Erebus asked the horse. She goes, Winnie, Winnie, Winnie. And she goes, I'm not going to call you that. I'm going to call you Quinn. Yep. Makes Chase, sense. Chase would is not, so disappointed have, in me right now. <laughs> would not have noticed that if you hadn't said it. But hearing you say it, I think that is 100% why her name is Quinn. And that is... <laughs> That is what it is. Chase just looked at me with so much just disappointment and like just <sighs> contempt. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's not in you. It's in the fact that that is why her name is that. Because I think you're right. I really do think you're right. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, but we, you know, we we move past Whitty 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 over here, uh, and. We, uh, you know, they have this conversation and Erevis tells uh, Quinn that uh, in the name of Tash and Azeroth and Zardina, I don't know who Azeroth and Zardina are. Uh, I but assume they're gods. Probably. Who knows? Uh, they don't come up again, I don't think. Uh, and then it says, I have a great wish to be in the country of Narnia. And she says, oh, my mistress, if you were in Narnia, you would be happy for you wouldn't have to be married against your will. And they're like, great. Let's Which do it. I mean, it is, we talked a little bit last chapter about the uh, the Pilgrim's progress of this story, like as, as kind of the template of this story. And part of that here is like, hey, the bad customs of men, like the ways that cultures and societies are broken, those aren't true in the the city of light, the mm -hmm. wherever we're going, the, the Narnia in the North of it all. Um, yeah. The, the bad things aren't bad there. Like, and so 
it uh it does feel like that it it also when you get into the other aspect of it of like well we're comparing cultures here and and like some cultures we would say from our perspective are not moral in in certain decisions or like customs that they have being like oh well that's not the way we do that and it's better for you to get there like we can objectively say like no we don't think girls should be forced to marry but it does bring a weird aspect into this that i don't know just wanted to observe sure i think it's important to just like like you said observe there uh, more so than past judgment of just saying like oh, no. these are there are differences in culture and i think it's important to know them to understand why and not just say evil bad like different yeah uh, but to understand no, why an aspect of human history like mm-hmm. and I, to like look at most things objectively as much as you can but also to say like hey like being forced as a young girl to marry a 60 year old man uh is not great yeah and the moral lesson here is that having agency is an inherent good yeah like, being able to choose what you do with your life is an inherent good that is worth pursuing, even if it means leaving behind what you know. Absolutely. And that is, yeah, it, it's an interesting motivator. Like it very much makes sense. I, I can't think of what story is comparable because it rang, it rang of like other stories to like, run away from home because you're being forced into marriage. I just can't think of which ones. Sure. I know I've heard that tale before, like not here, but I don't know. But There's either way. The, the story Brave with Merida. I mean, and that, I is not a, that, uh, that is not a, that is not a recent. So sure. That and that's also not a, it's not a, uh, an ancient story that yeah. he would be drawing from. But um, as you talked about, she is now, uh, making this decision to choose something different for her own life. And in doing so, she goes full Mulan. She uh, puts on her brother's armor. Uh, you know, intense music starts playing in the background. She's already sung, Who is That Girl I See? Uh, she puts on her brother's armor. She, go, or she, you know, packs it all up. She goes to her father and plans this escape where she's going to, she's like, hey, dad, like, I'm just going to go out into the, you know, into the wilderness for a little bit, into the woods and, you know, do all these uh, rituals for marriage, like sacrifice to these gods and blah, 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 blah. And like prepare myself. And she, he's like, great. I'm so proud of you. That is awesome. And then she goes to a servant in the household and is like, Hey, I need you to forge a letter fr- like that. We will find out later. Uh, because you know, as, as Shasta asked, what's in the letter? Bree's like, shut your mouth. She's going to get to it. Uh, and we find out later, this is a letter from her, it is a forged letter from Ashosta, uh, her her betrothed, or Ahosta. It's hard. That's a H's H's in a word just really throw me. Ahosta yeah, definitely makes it uh, less easy to say. But also, yeah. didn't she say it's her uncle as well? Like, is that something that I missed earlier? That this guy is her uncle, or how how did this come about? Because I have no clue. She mentions um, that essentially she's saying she married her uncle at one point, and that struck me as very odd. Maybe they may be kind of like a distant relative kind of uncle. I'm not really sure. I'd hope it's a different, a distant relative uncle, and not like yeah, her. It's uh, not 
not my favorite. Not great. No, not not the best. Okay, uh, it is. So she says. Uh, he said later the where you're getting the uncle. I think is her. That's her deception for the mailman. So uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. But basically, she tells the mailman, "Hey, I have a letter from my uncle to the uh, to Kidrash Tarkin, her her dad, because she is pretending to not be herself." Okay. She's okay. she's she's pretending to be a like a different person. So, so this is just her being too crafty for me to follow the storyline. Yes. I like it better. I wish it had been more than one single word in a sentence to understand that to yeah. maybe catch what's happening there because yes. I did not pick up on that. Yeah, and then cuz it doesn't really explain that she is not like like that she's being deceptive. But I yeah. think that's what she's doing because she's what she what she is doing is uh she's writing a forged letter or having her servant write a forged letter from her betrothed to her dad saying, "Hey, we saw each other when she was on the way home uh and we decided to get married then and there and so you don't need to worry about her. She's all safe. But if you wanted, you can come visit." And that that's really clever because it gets, you know, everyone off of her back and gives her more time to escape. And so, uh, but the, the servant does not want to do this. And she basically ends up commanding him. And she, he, he says this phrase to hear is to obey, uh, which is a very interesting, like response to a command where it's yeah. like, if, if you say it, I must do it. I mean, it's very much like, I mean, in their culture, she's talking to servants that are servants or, or slaves they are they are bound to her and if they disobey her it will be a problem for them yeah but yeah it's uh that, <laughs> and apparently comes up a couple times yeah but also even if you do obey her as we'll find out that can also cause problems because uh she goes uh with this this servant girl from her stepmother and they go and uh they start drinking a little bit and Erevis drugs this girl. Yeah, straight up like roofies her, like to make her sleep what a day and a night? Like Yeah, like a is, long time. This is not okay. Like not okay. generally not okay. And later Shasta will say, Hey, that wasn't okay. And Erevis will be like, Well, I didn't do it to make you happy. But she like she just does not Shasta's care. right. And and again, this is part of the rejecting expectations, rejecting customs of like. Like the assumptions she has to learn aren't necessarily good. Like it is good to call out like this was a not moral thing to do. And like this is a spoiler alert for the end of the book. Uh like Aslan will as a lion disguised not as Aslan or as a big cat, I don't remember if it was lion. Anyways, he will slash uh Erevis's back later in the story. And then she will learn later that that was payback for the fact that this girl got whipped the same number of cuts that she has on her back for that, which has its own moral. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about all of the We're theological not implications. Thing, but yeah. this question of whether or not that's right and Erevis being wrong that it's not right is going to be something that comes back up and is part of her journey of learning that you can't put other people through pain to better your own like plans. Absolutely. 
it's part of her empathy lesson. Is that the best way to teach someone empathy? Uh, probably not. Not not a huge fan of the like retributive uh, like lesson teaching, but yeah. it it is what is in this story. Yeah, and we'll talk about that at the end of this uh, at the end of this book. Um, but in the meantime, she drugs her servant girl. She makes her way to this city. She finds a postman and tells her, "Hey, send this letter." And he's like, "To hear is to obey." Uh, and they uh, they make their way. Describes what's in the letter, basically saying what we've already talked about. That uh, you know, her betrothed was so excited to see her that they got married at once, and that her father, you know, at, you know, whenever it's most convenient, should come and visit them, uh, and that gives them some time to escape. Uh, and then uh, they hear these lions, and then they run into uh, the uh, to Shasta and to Bree. And that's where we end up now. And Shasta has this conversation with her about, you know, maybe you shouldn't drug your servants uh, or anyone. That's just kind of messed up. Um, and then he asked this question after Erebus goes, hey, I don't do anything to please you. And he goes, there's another thing I don't understand. You're not grown up. You're not even older than me. How in the world could you be getting married at your age? And Erebus says nothing. And Bree says, Shasta, don't display your ignorance. They're always married at that age in the great Tarkin families. And it's like, I, it's tough for me because it's like he, Shasta is really insecure and this just makes him even more so. He gets really embarrassed by this. He doesn't really say anything the rest of the chapter and like, he's going to get left out and like, he doesn't know this. He's just pointing out something that he doesn't understand and doesn't feel right to him and he gets like chastised for it and like there is part of this to be said like hey you know if you don't understand something about someone's culture there's a way to go about doing it but there's also a way to correct yeah there's there's a there's a way to say like hey this is part of their culture you know this is something to learn not like hey you know don't be ignorant don't you know it's like oh well yeah you just shut me down i wouldn't want to talk well, this is one of those places where, in this situation, Bree and Erevis represent unquestioning complicity with the customs of nobility. Like, they are from the rich elite background. They assume that the things that they've learned, the things that they've known, are right. And then Shasta represents someone coming from another perspective, someone coming from a quote-unquote lower class, someone coming from, like, not that situation who has perspective to see the flaws of high society. Yeah. And honestly, this is something that happens in our own culture where people who have, you could call it privilege or high class or just resources, money, like people who are in the upper echelons of society don't understand the ways that they like necessarily in the wrong or at least doing things that are outside of what would be in a normal realm of morality or things because no one's going to tell them that they're wrong because they're powerful. Mm -hmm. So Shasta is speaking truth to power because there is no risk there because he's not in a place where they can do anything about it other than shame him, which they do. But like, it's it's interesting to see the dynamics of these characters be like the lower class commenting on the corruption of the upper class 
in a very neutral space. Yeah. Like that that is part of what bringing this kind of collection of characters together brings us. Yeah. And it, it you mentioned this interesting dynamic between Bree and Erebus coming from this higher class noble society uh and they're immediately going to bond more and they're obviously going to be the ones that converse more and talk more in this time because Bree is going to tell their story and he's going to put a lot of emphasis on Shasta falling and looking like an idiot. And he thinks it's hilarious, yeah. but luckily Erebus doesn't laugh. So that's like a sign. It's a quick little notice to be like, Hey, like Erebus is learning yeah. slightly. But also you get the sense that like Bree is not doing that necessarily to, he's like, not doing it to be mean. Yeah, he he's trying to make himself look better in a way. Yeah, like, he thinks that through bonding by putting down someone else, he's going to elevate himself. Which, just as a note for any of our young and impressionable listeners, like that's don't not like a that. way to make friends. Like no, no one people people ever, don't like that. Yeah, like even if you do find people who will laugh along with you and do that, like. That's just not something to build relationships on. Like you can be yourself without having to put others down. Like absolutely, yeah. Don't do that. It's crazy. Don't do that. But as they continue on in their conversation, they get to this point, and I think this is a really interesting um, thing that C.S. Lewis notes about society. It just like things that people do. Where it says Bree was not trying to leap Shasta out of things, though sometimes Shasta felt like that was what he was doing. People who know a lot of the same things can hardly help talking about them. And if you're there, you can hardly help feeling that you're out of it. Um, it's it's really interesting because it's this whole process of Bree and Erebus having this conversation about all of these same things and all the people that they know and all the different you know wars that they've been to and the nobles and blah, blah, blah. And Quinn and, uh, and Shasta feel really left out because they just don't know anything about these things and this is really interesting this is really relevant and like relatable and this is also something that i'm really bad at i do this all the time and it is a huge flaw of mine is i'm really bad about like when i find something in common with someone if we're in a group i will forget that i am that there are other people that i should be including in a conversation and just like keep going on this one thing. Like I'll be really nostalgic. I'll, you know, talk about this one thing and be like, Oh, and then like, you know, five minutes later, I'm like, Oh shoot. Like this person hasn't said anything. And like, they haven't been a part of this conversation in a long time. Like. Yeah. Having been in the Shasta seat of this situation many times in my life, it is the worst. Mm-hmm. And it's something that it is a universal human experience to feel left out. Like there's the saying, uh like threes a crowd it it's true like it's hard to keep a conversation it takes people who have very distinct self-awareness to make a three-person conversation feel include inclusive to everybody the, the bigger bummer here is that there's four of them and Owen is just kind of off to the side and it's it's a As, bummer. Like I feel bad for her more than I feel bad for Shasta because yeah. I mean, that's something that will be easier to overcome than literally not even making it into the story. Yeah. 
as you as you said, uh, her defining character trait is being present. Uh, she is she is physically there, but not actually like relevant to the story. Yeah, which she does get her plan through though. Like she does later, she will have a plan that comes through. She'll have more important stuff later, but right now, she just don't matter. Yeah, she's there. But uh, it's uh, we learn that during these little discussions, um, Erevis, very little, very, very little, was slightly less unfriendly to Shasta. So, Chase, small progress. Steps. Small Maybe steps of progress. It's, uh, and also, it is really interesting to me that the thing that transitions this kind of awkward situation in Shasta's mind is when they turn to talking about their plans to get in and through Tashban. Like, mm-hmm. and, and that's actually something that similarly in social settings, it is a lot easier to include everybody when you're making plans than it is when you're talking about like niche subjects. Yeah, when you're making building relationship. Is, yeah, making plans is one of the best way to get to know people. Mm-hmm. It's it's a great way to include someone as opposed to just relating on a like personal level. Uh, but they are going to Tashban, this great city, and they've decided, hey, let's meet at the tombs of ancient kings. And they're like, hey, isn't that like haunted by ghosts? Uh, and like that's what Arabic asks. I'm not I ain't afraid scared, of no Carol. ghosts. Uh, you well, might be afraid of ghosts, but I'm not scared of ghosts. It's funny because like Bree is like he is the adult in this situation, and he goes. Well, I'm a free Narnian. I don't believe in those Calamarine tales. Like, I don't believe in ghosts. And then Shasta's like, yeah, me neither. But he totally does. And then Erebus is like, well, I don't mind ghosts either. But she totally does. Yeah. And it's like, that's just a very little kid thing to do to be like, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like, I'm I'm not scared. You're scared. Like, oh, yeah. it's. This is fully middle school. Very fun. But yeah, it's for it's, sure. Yeah, they agree to meet at these haunted tombs that they're all totally not scared of. Uh, totally. But then there was the issue of like, how do they get there? Like mm-hmm. the easiest way to get around, because as they know, if they try to go around the city, like going north or south along the river, there's not going to be a place to cross because on one side, they'll get caught up by a fishing boat and for sure caught and they'll look super suspicious. And then on the other side, there's like pleasure houses and like vacation homes where people might legit recognize Erevis and like, I mean, Oh honey to Bree who thinks that someone might recognize him or horse. Um, But yeah, they're like, we will get recognized one direction, caught the other direction. The only way is through. And here comes Quinn with the win. <laughs> win with the win. Uh, she says, we're going to have to go in disguises. Both of the humans are going to have to look like peasants or slaves dressed in rags. And uh, you know what? The horses, uh, you know, because, you know, people are going to recognize Bree as a war horse. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to have to cut our tails off. Yeah. Bree is noticeably like a large, impressive war horse. Quinn is a, like... Very She's a beautiful mare, expensive, nice mare. Like looks like the horse that a princess would own. So if there's two children dressed in rags and dirt leading these two very impressive animals through, it looks like they stole them. 
Um, so cover them in mud and chop their tails off. Yeah. But at least Bree gets to roll around in something. So it's great. He does like that, you know, He's whether or not very, it's a good habit or not, he does enjoy it. But Bree is very offended. He was like, I am not going to cut my tail off. Uh, and he's like, imagine what, like, you know, what I'll look like when I get to Narnia covered in mud and have no tail. And when goes, well, the most important thing is that we actually get to Narnia. Yeah. Which is a very great point from Quinn. Quinn for the win. And I mean, even that line, like that sentence, she said it humbly because she was a very sensible mare is what the book says. Like yes. that is like her personality. Like it's, it's hard to read a quiet person on a page, but like she's her sensible comes through. She's the voice of reason. So far also, she's proved. Like, yeah. Is revealing through juxtaposition where Bree's insecurities really lie is like he just wants to be accepted when he gets to what he views as his home, but like she just wants to get to their there. home. Like yeah. it's it's not about how good you look when you get there; it's the fact that you made it. And yeah, it also shows just like the position that they're coming from. She is more of a servant position then he has a very high view of himself as a charger as a war horse mm-hmm. absolutely uh but he agrees to it at the end uh, and they all decide to go with Quinn's plan and um their plan involved a lot of what shasta would call stealing but what Bree would call raiding because we got to throw in real quick again shasta is the moral like compass here Saying like, hey, isn't this right or isn't this wrong? Uh, and Bree's like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's necessary. Only if it makes him not look the way he wants to look does he care whether or not it's right or wrong. It's, yeah, that's uh, true. But yeah, it it is very much uh, like, again, we don't need to worry about stealing that much. Like, it'd be one thing if you were like thinking like, oh, we're going to like rob this person versus like get this burlap sack out of their trash like yeah. differences differences and sure. they actually do buy some raggedy boys clothes for uh for Erebus. so yeah they they're not stealing much they're stealing sacks like flowers trash it's it's but fun they uh it's you know it is what it is but we again we we make our way into Tashban and we again see Shasta's ignorance his insecurity he has never seen such a great city and it's scary it is frightening to him he's used to little fishing towns and this is this is different and he is it's it's again this building of this idea that he doesn't know things he is naive he is unaware of what the world has to offer and it makes him again feel less than yeah absolutely it also brings up the question of how many people are there in this world? Like, it's a great question. Because it kind of seems like Calamine is a bigger, like more populated place than Narnia or Archenland. And don't forget about the Telmarines, Chase. Sh- sure, sure. Can't forget about the Telmarines. We won't next uh, book. I, I think they. Is that uh, that Caspian's people? Yeah. 
Okay, cool, cool, cool. I'm with you now. <laughs> so it's it, it is a thing where it's like we've talked about this in the previous books. It is so like we do not understand the world that this is. Like Narnia is there, and it's the main place. Yeah, but and also it's very rural and yeah. has like a central monarchy, but less developed. That, it's not very developed. It's not very populated. It's not much which right. is beautiful and it's a good place and we love it but also like it's I mean, more of Ashman's it's more of an eden pit. in the midst of cities yeah like, which i mean the city versus garden dynamic is very old testament symbolism so sure sure great but yeah it uh like i don't even know if c.s lewis is paying attention to the scale of the story he's telling or like whether yeah. it makes sense in terms of the larger story he's told it it provides issues that we will talk about more later as well um where like we we've, we've already talked about how there are humans in this world and they're not like separated by a long distance and the narnians are aware of these humans in other worlds but also have never seen a human yeah it's really odd it you're you're telling me like sense. this huge city with like, you know, or this huge nation with millions of people, for, you know, supposedly yeah. like no one has ever gone north and none mm -hmm. of the Archenlanders have, none of the Telmarines have like. Tashban seems like it's probably a city of a hundred thousand people. Yeah. And then there's plenty of other towns and localities like there's stuff going on here which seems like it would be more humans than should be in the world of Narnia combined. No one's gone North. No yeah. one's been to Narnia chase. Never. They don't talk about it. Don't worry about it. But we will see some Narnian Kings and Queens later, but let's just ignore yeah. that. Just casually passing through in the next chapter. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> we got to go, we got to go have some Prince and Popper first. So it'll, yeah, uh, yeah. it'll have its own, it'll have all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's just interesting, honestly. It's yeah, it just he he paints himself into some corners sometimes. Which uh, I mean, these but, are not the biggest plot holes in this in these oh, so far. Like this for is sure, a not minor gripe. It's it's, it's a it's a minor nit to pick, but you know it is what it is. But Bree Chase is pissed about his tail. True. He is not happy about it, and it he hurts. is it hurts. He is grumpy. He is not going to, he's going to make sure that people know that he is not for this because they had to cut it with a scimitar uh, as opposed to like, you know, good cutting shears or something like that. So it was not super comfortable for him. And he was very proud of that tail. Look, not going to lie. I think if you gave me a scimitar, I could cut a horse's tail off in one stroke and it wouldn't be that bad. Like, like if you, if you took like a, regular kitchen knife to cut off a girl's ponytail yeah it would pull her hair a bit but it'd be over quick enough like yeah. that's basically what's happening here it's just yeah maybe they're just bad at cutting yeah i mean probably but also i think brie is just a whiner in this situation this is i think so too and like you know after his after his whining and after they decide uh you know to make sure that they're going to meet at this ancient tomb shasta goes Remember, don't you two horses forget yourself and start talking, whatever happens. Why would he, 
why would he make this assertion if not to drop a clue that like this is probably gonna happen? It's just a seed to plant to let you know what later drama will be. I mean, that's like, probably right. I don't remember if that happens or not. In this I don't book. either, but I assume it will because it, it seems like it would. Because why else would Shasta say this? Like, he's not the guy in charge. Bree is, if anyone. Like, who is he to say this? And like, he, how? Like, I don't know. It, it just feels like a weird thing to say, if not for C.S. Lewis to be setting up some drama. I mean, it is a fair warning considering they've been out for months at this point and sure. talking freely. So it it makes sense, like if you've gotten comfortable one way to maybe like be careful. But uh but yeah, it, it did kind of feel out of place. It felt like just like a casual way for CS Lewis to end the chapter of like, I just need a line to go out on and I don't know what else to do. So here it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chase, do you have anything else before before we dive further up and further in? I think I'm good. Cool. I'll start us off. Uh, mine is uh, both of ours relate to stories uh, and storytelling, which a lot of this chapter is. But mine really deals a lot with uh, how C.S. Lewis incorporates different stories from the world around him and from stories that he had heard as a kid, mythologies and tales that he incorporates those into Narnia. C.S. Lewis is a, a, like loves a good story. He loves a to tell a good story. And he knows that in order to tell a good story, you got to know good stories. Um, and he's going to use, he has no uh, qualms, he has no hesitations with using good stories to help tell his good stories. Uh, and, you know, that's a, it's a, there's a gospel metaphor uh, where it's like, why, you know, why do so many stories have like some resurrection motif? Thought, like think Harry Potter, think uh, Lord of the Rings, think anything that, you know, involves that is because it's the best story. You know, that's uh, the best story is gonna, like people are gonna want to retell it. And so C.S. Lewis, you'll see that in uh, in, C in all throughout Narnia is he's going to be making references to other stories. So Erebus's story alone, you're going to see stories uh, that are going to incorporate the evil stepmother motif, the being forced to marry someone motif, the uh, the, uh, the the girl kind of escaping with her like with you know family armor motif. Like these are stories. That like though we know them as modern you know Disney stories that have been around for a long time. That these are stories that have been told over and over again. He's going to incorporate Greek mythology. He's going to incorporate uh, different tales and uh, and different like you know fables and all these things into his stories. And as we've mentioned already, he's going to include a lot of biblical stories in his stories. Uh, he's going to like in the next book, you're going to see see a lot of like. Saul, David, and Jonathan stuff. You're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, all of these these stories with, um, like, the Bible being interwoven throughout all of his books. Uh, and so he loves a good story and knows that to tell a good story, you need to know good stories and include good stories. And he wants to do that. Yeah. My further up and further in is also about stories within stories, but thinking more about the flashback side of things, uh, specifically with Erevis's story of her life. Because in this chapter, we do get just a masterful flashback from C.S. Lewis. Uh, and Erevis is telling her story in what we're told is the traditional Calamine style, which, I mean, for 
the writer of the book gives permission to do it in a very elevated presentation rather than like in a lot of stories when you see flashback you get very casually worked in the conversation or i mean sometimes people will just do kind of a clunky cut scene kind of like you have in in a movie but this worked really well in the chapter and, and it fits into a tradition of fantasy storytellers using the medium of storytelling as a tool within the story that they're telling. Uh, it, it's a way of honoring their craft. Like for example, in Harry Potter, there's the story of the three brothers um, or, or even Tom Riddle's diary, which creates this other meta dialogue within the books around uh, whether books and and stories are dangerous in and of themselves and whether you should trust books and stories, um, which is also funny because in society at the time, Christian moms were all worked up about the danger of J.K. Rowling's books bringing witchcraft into their kids' lives. Um, but all that aside, like I really like when authors use creative flashback. Like, things like a character intentionally telling the story or the discovery of an old book or message as the way that we come across the flashback or even in conversation with one character filling in another character and therefore the audience on something that they missed out on. Like these are all ways that gets the whole story across that doesn't require abandoning the flow of the narrative. And, and that makes it a lot cleaner, a lot more organic. And one of the reasons why this book so far has been so compelling as like something to read is that we get things like Shasta's backstory and Erebus's backstory through these more organic ways rather than a very clunky, like aside from the author saying, well, you know, reader, if you were there for this, you would know this. Like it, he doesn't do that in this book, which is what makes it so much more interesting. And, and doing it through a character's personality allows you to form more of an opinion on the character, but also it lets you find out when something that the character said or did, or even just a piece of the story was wrong. And, and all of this honors that stories and books, and, and you can even extend it to movies and TV, are worthwhile endeavors in and of themselves. Like one of the goals of good storytellers is, is to inspire other storytellers. And so by depicting uh, telling and hearing a story as an event in this chapter, C.S. Lewis is telling his readers, hey, this is an activity worth stopping to do just as much as it's worth going on any other part of this adventure. And I thought it was a cool thing that made the story way more fun to engage with. Chase, uh, you know, before these two podcasters uh, forget ourselves and just keep talking and, uh, you know, forget to mention anything about any of our listeners, uh, let me tell uh, everyone where you can find us. Uh, we, you can be, find our podcast anywhere we find podcasts. You are obviously listening to this, so you know that. But you can find all future podcasts and past podcasts on Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you or you listen to podcasts. Um, and we'd love it if you came in and engaged with us on social media on Instagram at, at the Chronicles of Podcast. Uh, we post things throughout the week and keep everyone up to date with when everything is updated and posted. Uh, so, you know, uh, make sure you come and follow us, engage with us, uh, let us know how we're doing, leave us a five-star rating, uh, leave a comment on our Instagram, letting us know what you'd like to see and what you'd like to hear in any future uh, podcasts. Uh, but Chase, we don't mind what these podcast listeners look like when they come in and enjoy our podcast, we don't mind at all. Yeah. The important I, thing is that you just listen, that you get here. Yeah. 
But if you don't leave us a five-star rating, we will cut off your tail with a scimitar. We will. And it's not going to be comfortable. Yeah, not pleasant. It's it's going to be a dull scimitar. A dull scimitar. Uh, and you're a proud, proud war horse. So might as well just leave a five-star rating. Sounds good. See y'all next week. Bye. Keep having the second podcast, so I kept having to uh, to mute and unmute because people are in my office now and talking about the next door. So hopefully yeah. none of that comes through, but I think I uh, I got it pretty clean. Right on. I think it's all good. I mean, there's a few things here and there, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. We will find out. No, no one will complain, so it's fine. <laughs>